Please, Lord, help me to be crystal clear, concise, compelling, and practical as I take a rabbit trail this morning about Jesus' ignorance. Help me, Lord, to be thoroughly biblical and to leave no one confused. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I want us to focus on this text where Jesus tells us in the middle of the Olivet Discourse that concerning the time of his second coming, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son. And that, I say, is in all the Greek manuscripts in Mark's account, Mark 13, 32. Jesus did not know the day nor the hour of his second coming. Now, Jesus had given his disciples, as we saw last week, very clear signs of the destruction of Jerusalem. Those signs were sufficiently clear that they were able to act on them and get out of Jerusalem before the Roman armies under Vespasian initially and then his son Titus destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and knocked down every single stone of the temple, leaving only the foundation underneath, which is what we call the Wailing Wall today. But Jesus now is shifting gears, and he is answering their question, because they put it all together. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? found in Matthew 24, 3. I want you to notice one of the key things he tells us. He says, it will be as in the days of Noah. Now, let me tell you how this verse is misread. People say, well, let's go back and look at what was going on in Noah's day. That's not his point. His point is, it's going to be totally unexpected. It's going to be exactly the way it was in Noah's day. Now, Noah knew it was coming. He didn't know when it was going to happen. He had, a, he had a pretty good figure in mind because God had told him when it would happen and he had to get out and build that ark. And you can just imagine there's Noah with his three sons and their wives making a total of eight people. You can just imagine how all the people mocked him. You think Christians get mocked on Facebook? It was nothing compared to what happened in the days of Noah. None of them believed this was going to happen. How many people do you know, believe that God is judging America or judging the world or may be ready to clean our plow and wipe our nation out? How many people think this nation will go on forever? How many people think that we'll be exempt from the kinds of things that the communists have done to people in China and are still doing as they practice genocide against all non-Han Chinese people? Or what the Russians did in the Soviet Union under Lenin and then under Stalin. How many people think that we're exempt from that? The persecutions that happen still in Saudi Arabia, the most radical Muslim nation on the face of the entire earth that makes Iran look like a Western nation by comparison. I didn't say Iran was like a Western nation. I said by comparison. Because there's no more tyrannical nation on the face of the earth in terms of anti-Christian than Saudi Arabia. And so the point I'm making here is to note in verse 37, what Jesus is driving at is the utterly unexpected nature of his return. Nobody's going to be suspecting it. 
Now, God's people were warned and were told to prepare. And they prepared by building an ark and going in it. And God supernaturally put it in the minds of animals to go and, and travel from wherever they were throughout the world to go inside that ark. And then God shut the door. That's a picture of the return of Christ taking Christians up into the clouds when Jesus returns. God supernaturally slammed the door shut and sealed it. It was watertight. Now, had some pagans been looking, they might have been shocked. They wouldn't have seen God visibly do this. They would have seen it happening. And they would have wondered, what kind of magic trick has Noah done? Does he have hidden ropes pulling that thing closed? They didn't see the hand of God come down and do it. You could have God's visible hand and pagan people will even admit it's there. But they just see it sealed. And then suddenly they hear something they had never heard before. Do you know that until the day that God sealed Noah and the seven members of his family in that ark, it had never rained? That instead God caused a mist. He caused vapor, water vapor, to cover the entire earth. That explains a lot of things in Antarctica and many other places where we find vegetation and animals and remnants of animals. The whole earth was covered with a water vapor, a cloud that protected us from radiation from outer space. It had never rained. Nobody had ever heard it thunder. Suddenly they hear the thunder. Oh, what is that? It sounded like artillery going off, except they didn't have artillery, we think. We have no idea what they had or didn't have in Noah's day. Suddenly they hear thunder. Suddenly water begins to fall out of the sky. Suddenly it becomes, it becomes huge. Those, that vapor canopy that surrounded the entire planet Earth begins to collapse and the waters in the heavens come down. And then suddenly other things happen. The Earth, which was relatively even in its topography, changes radically. Suddenly, masses of land collapse. And what comes out? The giant caverns of water that were held underneath the earth. And so suddenly all the people, they're stunned. Why didn't somebody tell us? God could have said, hey, I've been telling you for 600 years. I've been warning you again and again. You wouldn't listen. So the point of these, of these, these illustrations of Jesus here are not about describing conditions in Noah's day and looking around and say, oh, wow, you know, downtown Texarkana on a Saturday night. Have you ever been there? Look what's happening here. It's just like Noah's day. That's not the point of it at all. The point of it is it's going to be stunningly, surprisingly, shockingly fast and furious and they will be without hope. As Noah's ark had a little bumper sticker on it that said, smile, God loves you. Wow. I saw a cartoon of that one time. So the point that Jesus is making here is concerning his second coming. 
Not even he knew. Now that immediately leads us down a rabbit trail that is very important for us to take. I believe in rabbit trails. If you listen to me preach very long, you know that my sermons have many rabbit trails. I believe those rabbit trails are ordained by the Holy Spirit. Not always. Sometimes my mind goes wandering in some event. But I believe those rabbit trails are important because what? When we focus on a text, we have to also answer questions that arise because of the text. How can Jesus Christ, who is truly God, the only begotten Son of God, how can he be ignorant? And the answer to that is really made plain in Scripture. Turn with me, if you will, to the right, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. And that's page 1592. And uh, verse 39. Jesus has just been dedicated to God in the temple. Remember that the Christmas story, as we have it, by Christian tradition, not strictly from the Bible, fuses a number of things together as if they all happened on one night. The shepherds coming, the wise men coming, and all of those things. But if you analyze carefully the accounts of the birth of Christ in Matthew and Luke, you discover that the night that Jesus was born, the shepherds had a revelation from God by angels. And they went and they worshipped the Lord Jesus. Then if you analyze further, you discover that possibly as much as two years later, The stargazers from the uh, ancient world near Babylon came to Jerusalem seeking him who had been born king of the Jews. And they eventually found him. And by the way, there's no way astrologically to fix that event because the star they saw was not an astrological phenomenon. It was something supernatural because it had disappeared. It was there long enough to get them to get up and pack their bags, load their camels, and travel to Judea. But it had disappeared. And after they left Herod the Great, who, as as a consummately gifted politician, lied to them and said, please bring me word. I want to come and worship him too. Suddenly the star appears again. I believe it was an angel because it traveled and they followed the star till it took them over the house where Mary and Joseph and the child were. Now notice in this account you have two things happen in the gospel of Luke. One, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day which was commanded by God for all Jewish boys. And then at the end of 40 days, he is taken into the temple and dedicated as Mary was defiled ceremonially through childbirth. And so that's what we have here in verse 39, Luke 2, 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And that's where I think they were when the wise men came. And the child grew. 
and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I want you to understand that the human Jesus, at the moment the Holy Spirit supernaturally caused an ovum from Mary to produce an actual child in the womb. From that moment, the Godhead and the manhood were united in that one-celled organism. But Jesus grew. Jesus grew in the womb. Jesus is born. He's dedicated in the temple. He's filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now look across the page, verse 51. And this is 12 years later. Herod is long since dead. Mary and Joseph and Jesus travel down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And I'm sure they were mad as all get out. Look at the very top of the page. Listen to Mary's words to Jesus. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You think she was upset? You think she was mad? You think she was frustrated? You think that she was shocked that Jesus had treated them this way, that he had stayed behind? What would you do with your 12-year-old who decided to stay for three days here in the sanctuary of Trinity Presbyterian Church discussing theology with those who happened to be around? And you'd already traveled three days. That wouldn't take you to Atlanta, Texas. That might take you over to Atlanta, Georgia, or, or further, depending on how you traveled. Now look at Jesus' answer. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? What a response. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Verse 51, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Think about it. Two people who didn't know what they were doing, just like any parents. Are you a parent, a grandparent? Do you really believe you know what you're doing? Do you know the greatest lesson I learned as a parent and a grandparent is? I never knew what I was doing when I began it, and I still don't. Do you know the greatest technique for raising a child is done on your knees, saying, Lord God, I don't know what to do. You know, once you get children potty trained, They're relatively easy to deal with until they need deodorant. And I don't know what it is in the chemicals in deodorant, but children just go crazy. And if you've ever raised a child through teen years, you know you're going to be driven to your knees again and again and saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. Help me. So being on your knees is the first thing. Verse 51, he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Think about it. Suppose you're a Christian young person. And there are some listening to this uh, on the internet. And your parents are the stupidest people in the world. One of my children, the one that gave me more gray hairs and put me more on my knees than anyone else, 
was fond of giving me special mugs with writings on them, such as sometimes I talk to myself because I need expert advice. But one of them said, the older I get, the smarter I realize you are. You know when your children are going to finally recognize, man, I had great parents. It's when they have raised teenagers themselves and they say, oh, wow, I put mom and daddy through that. But you notice here is the one and only perfect human being other than Noah, other than, other than Adam and Eve who were perfect until the day they sinned. Here's the only other perfect human being. And what does he do? He submits to Joe Biden. Or Donald Trump. You see this? He submits to stupid people who don't understand. People look and say, is anybody in charge in this country? Is anybody in charge in this state, in this county? Or if you're in Louisiana, this parish? Don't they know what's going on? Bottom line is no. But what is our response? Jesus submitted to Joseph and Mary. He was obedient to them. God doesn't call you to figure out what the government ought to do. He calls you to get on your knees just like you do for your children and pray for government leaders just like your stupid children. Because your children are never going to come around by your incredible intelligence and logical arguments and your careful manipulation. Remember, you can get a child to obey either by force or by manipulation. And if you can manipulate a child into obedience, you turn them into sometimes a, so, a sociopath. The bottom line is people have a sinful nature. Joseph and Mary had sinful natures. Jesus did not. He was obedient to them. But now notice the next sentence. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Mary tried to figure all this out. She knew that Jesus was the eternal Son of God because the angel Gabriel told her how it was all going to happen. And she had seen it happen. She had seen the shepherds come. She had heard of the story of the singing angels. She had been visited by the wise men. And now she's just been treated. Treated. Treated by Jesus as if she's just a dog. My gracious, I can't believe the boy did this. We had to turn around and go all the way back on foot. So she's pondering it. Now look at verse 52. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was not all that wise when he was a little baby. Nor was he all that big. He grew in stature. When he was born, he wasn't some gigantic baby. He was a normal-sized baby. And he had to have his diapers changed. And he was utterly dependent on his mother's milk and the care of his parents. And he grew in wisdom and stature. Now notice, and in favor with God and men. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus, in his human nature, developed physically and mentally. Now turn with me, Will, over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews, chapter 2, to the right, and you'll find this on page 
1864. Now look at what we're told here in verse 10, Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Are you suffering? Does God have anything to do with your suffering? Sure. Does Satan have anything to do with your suffering? Sure. Satan can't do what God does not ordain for your good. Jesus grew intellectually, emotionally, spiritually through the things that he suffered. Perfect through suffering. And then notice here in verse 14, Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every way. God could never save humanity unless God became a human being just like you and just like me in every single way. Except he never sinned. So keep reading. And he says, verse 17, he had this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. We're going to come back to that thought in a moment, but just turn over to chapter 5 for a moment. Chapter 5, and we're going to look at in, in Hebrews at verses 8 and 9. And this is what he says. Page 16, 1867. Verse 7, Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now one quick comment on both of these. Was Jesus imperfect in the sense that he had sinned? No. The Bible is explicit, not just implicit. It's explicit over and over and over and over again. Jesus Christ never sinned. Not with his body, not with his mouth, not entertaining sinful thoughts in his life. But what we've read in Hebrews is this. He suffered with temptations. Have you ever had a temptation that was so overpowering, so unbelievably strong that you found it virtually irresistible? People talk about addictions. 
An addiction is an overwhelmingly powerful temptation that is impossible to resist apart from grace. Did Jesus suffer the pulls of addictions in his life? Absolutely. Did he ever go out and do drugs and become addicted to heroin? Of course not. He never sinned. But what I want you to understand is this. The God who made heaven and earth came in the person of his eternal only begotten son. And that only begotten son is almighty God, creator of billions of galaxies. Yet, in his love for us and this bizarre little planet, he came into this world as a single-celled human organism. And he went through all of the trials and afflictions you and I go through. The pull to sin that's irresistible. Somebody comes to you and they slap you on the face. What's your reaction? I know what mine is. If one of those sticks I use when I walk is to take it and knock them down. That's the natural thing, isn't it? But Jesus said, when somebody strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other. Wow. Hey, that hurt. Do you think Jesus meant that literally? Well, I'm going to tell you how literally he meant it. Jesus submitted to government authority, even that authority was wicked, evil, and corrupt. He allowed himself to be beaten. He allowed himself to be slapped, spat upon, (coughs) crowned with thorns. He submitted to ungodly people out of obedience to the Father because he knew that God had a perfect plan for his life and for your life. This is the amazing thing. (coughs) The Russian national anthem begins with these words. God the all-terrible, King who ordainest. I want you to think about that for a moment. God the all-terrible, King who ordainest. That King who controls everything. That King before whom Nebuchadnezzar the Great of the Neo-Babylonian Empire confessed after God healed his mind that he doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and nobody can stay his hand or say to you, what are you doing? That absolutely, dreadfully sovereign God came into this world just like you and me suffering all the things you and I suffer. Temptation, fear, All of those things. Ignorance! Don't you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? No. If you knew what was going to happen tomorrow, you'd probably disobey God. God has ordained wrecks and everything else in your life with a good purpose. What I want you to see is in the middle of all the temptations that Jesus faced, He had a human soul, a human mind, a human spirit, a human body. He wept outside the tomb of Lazarus because He felt human pain in the loss of a loved one, even though He knew He had the power to raise Him from the dead, and He did. When He walked a long distance, 
he sat down by Jacob's well in Samaria. And he asked a Samaritan woman, give me something to drink. I'm thirsty. He was weary. He was tired. Everything you go through, being bone tired. You ever been bone tired? Have you ever been so tired you're standing up and you start falling asleep? Wow. So tired. And the worst of all, concerning that day and hour, the time of Christ's own return, only the Father knew, not the Son. Jesus did not know. What He had was, I've got to trust Father. I've got to trust Father. Looking into the future and seeing uncharted waters, darkness where I want to see light, knowing what's going to happen to me, and when is it going to happen, and is it going to happen? Not knowing, not seeing knowing that he had but one thing, to obey the Father. And he knew that if he obeyed the Father, all would be well, even though he'd go through hell. He knew that if he obeyed the Father, all would be well, even though he would go through hell. Did Jesus go through hell? Oh, yes. When they nailed him to a cross, and the eternal love that he had joined before time began with the Father in an unbroken way, suddenly is broken. And he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced hell on the cross. And then, as his body is put into a stone tomb, his soul goes down into Hades. Jesus went to hell. For you and me. Isn't it amazing? It amazes me. I just stand amazed at the paradox. How can the creator of billions of galaxies become a one-celled human organism? How can he be weak and helpless and have poopy diapers and to be dependent on his mother's milk and be subject to pain in his soul when people mocked him because they mocked him, you know? The rumor was around that Mary, his mother, had been promiscuous. She had not. She was a most pure virgin who supernaturally conceived the Lord Jesus. But do you think he was ever called the B word on the playground as a kid? He certainly had that thrown in his face later on. What was it like? What is it like? This is the closing thought, dear ones, in our little rabbit trail on how could Jesus be ignorant of the time of His second coming. He's ignorant in His human nature. In His human nature, He died on the cross. Who died on the cross? God died on the cross in His human nature. Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus, to His human nature. She was the mother of God in His human nature. This is a closing thought. I don't know what you face. I don't know what I face. I don't know what news I'll get. I have no way to know unless God reveals it. But that's where you and I are. On the 8th day, uh, the 28th day of August in the year of our Lord 2022, we look into the future with a great unknown. But I want you to know, somebody 
holds your hand and walks with you into that great unknown because he has been tempted in absolutely every single way the way you've been tempted and in his human nature he really does understand and when you fall into sin for there's not a person on earth except the Lord Jesus who doesn't fall into sin he fully understands and he has great sympathy great understanding he knows he knows the pull of sin he knows the power of an addictive pull that is virtually irresistible he knows he understands and he reaches out his nail-pierced hands for he still bears the scars and he says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden I will give you rest may we pray Lord bless us as we stare into the great unknown what will the 29th day of August bring or of September or 2023 Lord what will happen to our nation Lord all of the scenarios that people put out they're all possible and yet there's nothing possible apart from your goodwill and there's nothing possible where Jesus will not walk with us through. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You, Lord Jesus, are the great shepherd of the sheep. And we count ourselves supremely blessed to be your little lambs. In Jesus' name, amen.